Hello and welcome to the MetAaron Podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. This month, we are continuing our review of the IPCC's sixth assessment report on climate change. The third component of this report has just been released and details the steps needed to avoid the worst effects of climate change. I'm delighted to be joined again by Dr. Paul Flattery of MetAaron's Climate Services. Okay, so this is the third publication from the IPCC in the last six months or so. Together, they form uh, their sixth assessment report on climate change. So the first was looking at the sort of the physical basis or the science behind climate change. Uh, We discussed this in our COP26 episode back in October. Um, The second, which we discussed last month, was on sort of current uh, and future impacts of climate change. And so then there's this third report. What, What is this third report focusing on? So this report is the Working Group 3 report, as you said, and it focuses specifically on mitigation. And this essentially just means reducing greenhouse gas emissions in order to combat climate change. And similar to the the previous reports that you mentioned, there are, again, hundreds of authors who are all volunteers and scientists who uh, work in addition to their kind of current jobs. They do this as an extra and they don't get paid for it or anything like that. It's all voluntary. Um, and the IPCC have stated that there's an urgency out of this report to mitigate greenhouse gas emissions in order to avoid rapidly and potentially irreversible changes in the natural and human systems. And it's kind of, this is developed on the previous um, IPCC report, which was in 2014, the last kind of cycle, in that there's been uh, the Paris Agreement and the UN Sustainable Development Goals have all come out since. And this has really influenced the report or the direction that the report has taken. Um, And it was described, this report, by the UN Secretary General in kind of very stark terms. He said it's a file of shame that catalogues empty pledges and has put us firmly on track toward an unlivable world. So there's a lot of mitigation that needs to be done um, that we'll talk about. Okay, so you're talking about empty pledges there, and these, I guess, are pledges to reduce emissions by by different countries and organizations. Emission reduction would be central to any kind of mitigation efforts we would need to uh, reduce the effects of climate change. What does the report say on how our emissions have been changing? The report outlines that we currently have one of the highest ever levels of emissions. Um, So to put it in context, 2010 to 2019 had higher emissions than any previous time in human history. So I was born about 30 years ago in 1992, and ever since then, we have produced over half of the total human emissions. So the previous 30 years have had the same level of emissions as the 200 years beforehand. So it's kind of a stark thing to think about, and it's related in part to population growth and economic growth, but it's mainly caused by overconsumption of resources, um, primarily by wealthy countries, And it's mainly caused as well by an over-reliance on fossil fuels. And we see that in the the outcome of this report. It outlines how um, emissions have been increasing in all greenhouse gases. That's methane, CO2, and nitrous oxide. Methane's gone up by about 30%, nitrous oxide about 30 as well. And CO2 has increased by 67% since 1990. So it's a huge increase in greenhouse gas emissions. Um, But there is, uh, that all sounds very negative, there is a slight bit of positive news out of that. Uh, The growth rate of emissions is slower than it was from 2000 to 2010. So in 2000 to 2010, it was about 2.1% per year, and it's now from 2010 to 2019 at 1.3% per year. So it's uh, growing slower, but it's still growing, and that's going in the wrong direction. So this is still far too high. It needs to be reducing if we're to get to net zero by 2050, which is the goal of the IPCC and the Paris Agreement. 
Okay, so the, the growth of the emissions is slowing. That, that statistic you mentioned about the emissions between uh, 2010 and 2019, the, the amount of, of carbon that was released during that period, I believe, is, is about the same amount of carbon that we have remaining, shall we say, in our budget, if we want to keep uh, warming to this, this, this limit that's often mentioned of, of 1.5 degrees Celsius. Based on our current progress and commitments, I guess the current warming is likely to be well above this. So, so does the report say what we need to do to sort of bring, bring us back in check with this kind of limit of 1.5 or maybe even 2 degrees Celsius? Yes, yeah, so we're currently on track for over three degrees of warming by the end of the century with current policies. And to kind of since we can't predict the future, the report outlines a variety of future scenarios um, that outline different paths that we could take to meeting uh, the two degrees or to meeting the one and a half degrees target. So these scenarios include first one would be sticking to current policies and doing nothing else, um, which leaves us at over three degrees. Another one is to um, use moderate climate action, which will get us below three, but not by too much. Um, another one is to gradually strengthen the current policies. And then there are more drastic scenarios that will actually limit us, limit us to one and a half degrees. And these include taking advantage of negative emissions technology, so sucking CO2 out of the air. Another one is to focus entirely on renewable energy. Another one is to completely shift uh, demand for goods. And then another would be to completely shift the way we think about economic development. And out of all of these strategies, the only ones which actually limit warming are the ones that focus on renewable energy. The ones that limit warming to one, one and a half degrees, I should say, are the ones that focus on renewable energy and low demand and shifting development. So we know now that radical transformation of all economic systems are necessary if we're going to reach that one and a half degree or even in the two degree target. But I think it's going to be a combination of all of these various scenarios that we will actually use to try and limit our emissions. So it's going to involve reducing consumption, huge increases in renewable energy, a complete change in the way that we think about economic growth and the way we value our environment um, has to completely change if we're to meet these targets. But I think the important thing to note is this kind of sounds like bad news, but this is a huge opportunity. Um, particularly for a country like Ireland with our renewable energy resources and our wind resources. You know, we need to rapidly reduce greenhouse gas emissions, um, but we can do this by really increasing um, economic development at home and abroad as well. Yeah, I think it's, it is important to say that, that through this report, it's peppered with um, positive potential in terms of the effects that can be done if we have those wholesale changes that you've mentioned. And I guess there'll be, as you say, various different components to those changes um, maybe we consider, say, the sort of the individual perspective first and, and individual actions that can help. So uh, the report looks at the role of consumerism, really, and, and sort of the demand for high emission goods, doesn't it? And the need to kind of reduce that demand. Yes, this is the first time that the IPC has actually outlined how if we reduce the use of high emitting goods and services, that this can have a huge impact on emissions. And it's kind of the personal carbon footprint impact. Uh, and in addition, it also recommends policies that make it easier to use cleaner forms of transport or policies which make it cheaper to eat more plant-based foods. All of this is going to be necessary if we're going to get this transition to two degrees. Um, and these changes um, could reduce global greenhouse gases by 40 to 70 percent. So these personal changes in the way we consume goods could reduce greenhouse gases massively. And we know that from COVID and the lockdowns that this kind of behavioral change 
This is a huge scale behavioral change, but we know that these changes are possible over short periods of time, especially if they're incentivized properly. And we should also be focusing, as well as changing the kind of goods that we consume and consuming low emission goods, we should be focusing on reducing consumption as much as possible. So while it's great to buy ethically produced low carbon goods, it's even better to reuse goods that exist already and just to consume less in general. One thing you mentioned there was just in terms of the food we consume. So obviously, uh, food production is a, is a is one of the major emitters of greenhouse gases, and changes to our diet have been suggested as as has been one major impact. Does that uh, does that get coverage in the report? Yeah, they outline how food kind of dominates the household carbon footprint globally. Um, the major contributors to this are cattle, so beef and dairy, and rice, uh, for, which produces methane. And in addition to the greenhouse gases, the food also impacts uh, global food resources, global water resources, as certain types of food take up more land that could maybe be put to better use if it was used for different purposes. Um, so we already have reports kind of outlines that we already have the answers for a lot of these problems. Um, we already have the resources for sustainable food production. Um, but significant cross-sectoral action is needed. So this will involve better agricultural practices, consumers changing their diets, producers, distributors, retailers, and consumers all reducing their food waste as well, because this is a huge problem. I mean, 20 to 40% of all food that we produce is wasted, and stopping this will then have a knock-on effect on the emissions. Um, the report also outlines how plant-based diets are very important in reducing emissions um, and reducing personal carbon footprints. It has huge mitigation potential, and there's strong evidence that uh, diets high in plant protein and low in meat and dairy will cause far lower greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and there is, like we often hear about Irish beef being greener, and that's very true in a lot of respects. But while there's a huge range in the kind of amount of greenhouse gases beef produces in Ireland, let's say, compared to America, um, it's still worth noting that even the greenest beef produces far more emissions than the dirtiest fish or the dirtiest tofu or the dirtiest nuts. So it's still worthwhile changing away from a, a meat-heavy diet to a much more plant-based one to reduce your own emissions. Looking at the at the scale of the of the issue in front of us and also the timeline in terms of the need for rapid change. So obviously individual choices and actions are important as much from, I guess, a moral perspective as anything else. But the reality is that we're going to need large scale system wide changes to get the sort of significant changes and the rapid changes that we need uh, to reduce carbon uh, output and to, to reduce climate change. Um the largest producer of greenhouse gases is, is the energy sector. Does, does the report uh, look at how we need to tackle uh, our energy systems and transform them? Yes, it does indeed. So the, the report says that warming can't be limited. It's impossible for warming to be limited to two degrees or one and a half degrees without rapid and deep reductions in energy system CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions. So this essentially means fully decarbonizing the electricity and heat systems, uh, buildings, transport, industry, all need to be decarbonized. No more fossil fuels for energy is essentially the outcome of this report. Um, but this, again, is not necessarily a bad thing. We've seen that solar energy and onshore wind is often far cheaper than fossil fuels in many parts of the world, and it's the prices are getting lower and lower. Um, and we, particularly when we see the price of oil and fluctuations in gas prices with the geopolitical conflicts that are going on, we're far better off switching to more renewable energy sources. And if we're going to limit uh, warming to one and a half or two degrees to avoid the catastrophic climate change, 
it is essential that we um, decommission current fossil fuel infrastructure and that we cancel new installations. So we need to completely stop new coal, new oil, new gas if we're to have a chance at limiting warming, particularly coal. Um, we need to get off dirty forms of energy like peat and turf, and we need to move towards um, much greener energy. But to do this, you know, we need to compensate people. We need to incentivize people to make these switches. We can't just say overnight things are going to change. People need to be supported in this transition as much as possible. Um, and the report also mentions how nuclear energy could be a low carbon solution. Uh, but nuclear energy is not really a short term solution. We need to reduce emissions immediately. And new nuclear takes quite a while to develop. It has huge initial setup costs. Planning for nuclear, as you can imagine, is quite difficult um, to get. There are challenges then with the disposal of the waste and then there's the public support because of incidents that have happened in the past. But we do have the solutions already. We have wind power, we have solar power, we have potential for hydrogen. So there's all these um, solutions are already there. And as you say, the, the costs of these solutions is continuing to decrease all the time. And, and it's like anything, the more you are using something, the more that the, the equipment needed to produce this energy is being produced, the cheaper the cost gets. So the idea of continuing to support and develop uh, non-renewable energy sources is, is doing us no favors because by purely by widely adapting renewables, we're automatically going to be reducing the cost and the cost of production. Um, but it is, as you say, that is a positive, even just looking over the last, since the last report came out in the last 10 years or, or seven years, I guess, uh, how much the cost of renewables has reduced in that period. Yeah, if we if we invest money now, let's say in new oil infrastructure, new gas infrastructure, new coal infrastructure, we're essentially going to have stranded assets in the future. Like these are um, these are assets that will not be possible to be used. They're only going to get more expensive. Uh, and while those other solutions look um, maybe expensive now, solar and wind will be far cheaper in the future compared to oil as oil becomes as the oil price fluctuates. So investing now and investing early and being a leader in this, particularly for Ireland. Um, will save us money in the long run. The way that we use land is also a major influence on greenhouse gas emission and on climate, whether that's agriculture, construction, or forestry, etc. Um, can land use be adapted to help mitigate climate change? Absolutely. So the report um, explains how 22% of global emissions currently come from agriculture, forestry, and land use. And about half of this, around 10 or 11%, comes from deforestation. So cutting down trees is the biggest kind of source of how um, land use can contribute to climate. Um, but we can halt that immediately to stop, um, to stop increasing emissions. So stopping deforestation is one clear way to uh, reduce emissions or to mitigate climate change. Um, and in Ireland, while we don't have a deforestation problem, we do have a problem with draining our peat bogs. And these are huge carbon stores. Our peatlands store vast amounts of carbon. But when we drain them for agricultural purposes or commercial purposes to sell um, compost or peat or turf, um, this releases huge amounts of greenhouse gases and prevents peatlands from being their natural carbon sinks. So we need to do things like restore our bogs, which will encourage, as well as biodiversity and um, kind of tourism even in those sectors, it'll also encourage um, more carbon to get back into the land to be stored there for, for a much longer time. Um, and the report states with high confidence that the rapid deployment of land-based measures for reducing emissions is essential if we're to keep warming uh, to one and a half degrees. So we need to do this. 
Okay. So again, it's part of that multi-pronged approach that you've mentioned that we need. We need all these different aspects working in a, to meet those to meet those targets. I know last month we mentioned about how more and more of the world's population are living in cities and how this poses both opportunities and problems. But specifically looking at emissions, um, having uh, the populations focused in more centers, it, it is an opportunity to, to have an impact. That's it. That's the key, I think. Um, it's by 2050, the report says that around 7 billion people or two thirds of the world's population are going to live in cities. And we know that the top 100 high emitting cities on the planet make up around 20% of the global carbon footprint. So if we can focus our attention on that 20%, it will be a great way of reducing emissions in future. And if we can see that cities can be these areas of kind of um, green transport and renewable energy, um, it'll mean that new cities that are built will be able to be much greener and emissions in the future will be much lower. Uh, there's a kind of a worry that populations in developing countries are expanding, living standards are improving, and cities will need to be developed further and require huge amounts of energy to build. But if we continue to kind of use conventional building practices, so the same way we've always built with concrete, and if we continue to build cities around cars, we're going to fail to plan for the future of these residents and for the planet itself, because all of these places will just become the emissions will just increase and increase. But again, we have the solutions to this. We can see places that have already done it. And we know that if we build walkable cities with proper public transport links or places that you can cycle, um, it's an excellent way to reduce our future emissions. And this is this is a win-win. You know, there's this improves physical health for the people in the cities, uh, mental health, and things like urban forests, green roofs, all help to improve air quality, mental and physical health. And they also do things like they cool the environment so you wouldn't need air conditioning as much as we might need here in Ireland in the future as we get warmer. And um, so again, the solutions are already there and cities are really a place that we can focus our attention. Absolutely. I mean, even on, on air quality is a separate issue, obviously, to climate change. But we saw the impact of that during COVID in some of the world's major cities. Uh, some really interesting satellite imagery that are, that are able to detect levels of uh, air-based pollution and how dramatically those levels dropped during lockdown periods. Um, obviously, we don't necessarily want to have quite so harsh measures as bringing in lockdowns, but the idea of having, as you say, walkable cities or more renewable methods of uh, transport. And I guess that brings us onto, onto the transport sector, which is obviously another major emitter of greenhouse gases. Um, does the report specify the actions that could be taken to help reduce those emissions? Yes, it certainly does. So it, it outlines uh, three measures to reduce transport sector emissions as much as possible. And the first one is basically to reduce travel. So the less travel that we do, the better. Um, it can be avoided by eliminating unnecessary journeys. They outline how working from home should be encouraged to try and avoid people wasting time in cars to commute in traffic and to just uh, produce emissions for very little reason when people can be just as productive at home. Um, and then other journeys that uh, that have to be done, let's say you need to be in work, if it's possible, it should be shifted from a car to a bus or to a train or to some sort of form of public transport or ideally to a walk or to a cycle. Um, but that, of course, requires the proper infrastructure being built. So we're going to need investment into um, infrastructure that allows people uh, to travel to work and to travel around as um, as cleanly and as greenly as possible. And then if um, if somebody does need to use a car or does need to use a bus, uh, the third prong of the IPCC's approach is that this bus should be powered by green energy. This should be powered by um, renewable electricity. 
Um, so again, this has the co-benefits. People working from home have a higher quality of life. They'll be able to move out of cities, move maybe into revitalized rural communities. And then the electric power system will have benefit of providing employment for more people. Air quality, as we mentioned, will be far better. So this is, again, a win-win-win situation. If we look at industry more broadly in terms of, say, manufacturing and uh, those kinds of processes, um, it's obviously a, an area where carbon emissions are almost inherent. I guess and the expectation is that it would be, it would be quite difficult or quite slow to, to decarbonize these sectors. Um, what kind of strategies does the report suggest for, for decarbonizing industry? So you're, you're right about it being difficult. And the report does acknowledge that it says that um, in getting industrial emissions to net zero is challenging, but it is possible. They don't say it's impossible. They say it can still be done. And these are emissions, when we think about industry, it typically is things like steel manufacture, cement manufacture, chemical manufacture. And to try and decarbonize these, um, essentially the report highlights that the key to this is to, um, to electrify the, uh, the processes as much as possible using renewable energy. Um, so if we can, instead of using fossil fuels um, in these industrial processes, if we can start to use renewable energy, um, and the report mentions the use of hydrogen in order to do this. So um, when we have excess renewable energy, let's say at nighttime when we're not using, the wind might be blowing, electricity might be being produced, but we might not be using it. Um, we could be using that electricity to split water into hydrogen and oxygen and then store that hydrogen, which can then be used to fuel industry, to fuel cars, to fuel houses and things like that. Now, that technology is not yet fully developed. It's still very expensive, but it will. the price of that kind of thing will go down uh, as fossil fuel prices increase and as uh, the technology improves. Um, and this will be a, an important part of the future um, for industrial processes and otherwise. And there's a huge opportunity here for countries that have maybe huge renewable energy resources. So places um, that get a lot of solar or that get a lot of wind, like ourselves here in Ireland, uh, have the potential to become these kind of hydrogen producing hubs uh, when we're not using that electricity to power our own country. Um, and the waste, uh, the waste product of hydrogen, that's it's simply water, isn't it? That's what comes from these processes. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So when you burn hydrogen, you just get water out of the out of the kind of exhaust. Um, so it's one of the cleanest forms of energy. It's the most abundant element in the universe. We're not going to run out of it in the same way that we will run out of fossil fuels. Um, and again, this, this process is far cheaper. If we think of um, things like aluminium production, uh, the report outlines that if we produce aluminium using recycled materials um, instead of using the raw materials, you don't have to dig it up. You don't have to get through, go through as much of um, the processing as you would otherwise. And it uses 5% of the energy. So there's a 95% reduction in the energy if you use recycled materials than there is using raw materials. So there's, again, huge opportunities um, in these areas. The way as well that we, you know, when we think of manufacturing, we also have to consider the end product in the way that we think of the end product as well, you know, in terms of, say, for you know, example, we all have smartphones or, you know, laptops, things like that, and they seem to be becoming more and more difficult to repair yourself. Um, and this idea of, you know, you purchase, you use it, and then you dispose of it. But perhaps there's a greater opportunity to, to, to create more sort of circular economies where we're uh, recycling goods or we're repairing goods and, and designing them for that purpose also. Yeah, absolutely. And this circular economy is something that's mentioned 
and we're going to be hearing a lot more of, I think, in the future. Um, and we see things now um, like right to repair laws have been passed in the EU. But, uh, we will now have the right to repair um, white goods, mobile phones, all that kind of thing. Because a lot of times people may not be may not want to purchase an entirely new appliance or an entirely new phone, but they kind of have to because you're forced into it and the parts aren't available or they're prohibitively expensive. That it's not worth actually um, fixing the thing. It's it's cheaper sometimes to just buy a new one. And this is um, something that's been kind of built in by a lot of manufacturers. It's called planned obsolescence. I think they plan on the the product being useless after a couple of years. So you have to buy a new one. And I think we are moving away from that. Consumers are becoming a lot wiser um, to kind of being exploited. And as well as that, lawmakers are changing um, the systems to make it easier for people to fix their own products now. One one approach that's been getting sort of increased coverage lately, and we touched on it briefly earlier, is the idea of actively removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So in tandem with emissions reductions to to try and uh, to reduce uh, climate change. Does the report look at how feasible uh, plans to uh, remove carbon dioxide are and and maybe other sort of, I guess, geoengineering approaches? Yes. So the report is very clear on this. And it says that if we're to limit um, if we're to limit warming to one and a half or even to two degrees, it's unavoidable that we're going to need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. So it's going to be essential. Uh, there are some sectors that you just it's going to be impossible to reduce emissions to zero. Um, so certain forms of agriculture, aviation, um, industrial processes, some of them it will be impossible not to produce emissions from. So in order to reach net zero, CO2 removal is going to be uh, essential for to get these emissions out of the atmosphere. And when we think of CO2 removal, this can be as simple as planting trees, um, which naturally take CO2 out of the atmosphere and store them uh, as carbon and growing crops uh, on soils that encourage uh, the soils to take in more carbon. As we mentioned, restoring wetlands and peatlands is a great way of storing carbon, but also it can involve um, building machines that actually suck CO2 from the air and store it into rocks. It stores the carbon as a kind of carbon rock and stores it for thousands of years then. And this CO2 removal technology is not yet kind of economical, but Again, as time goes on, it will get cheaper and it will become more efficient. But again, it's not going to be a, a solution on its own. It, it has to be in a solution, a solution along with reducing emissions as much as possible down to zero. And I think it's like it's important to note, and it is noted in the report, that there are multiple benefits to doing kind of natural CO2 removal. So things like um, restoring wetlands. Uh, can help to fight against sea level rise. It can provide a barrier against storm surges. It can also promote biodiversity. And as well as that, um, it can take in CO2 from the atmosphere and help to store it. Um, so there's a lot of co-benefits that happen with this kind of adaptation. I suppose as well, we have to be careful of, of sort of man-made geoengineering as well, because I suppose climate change in itself is, a, is geoengineering. We've, we've warmed the planet through releasing carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. And without a full awareness of exactly what the impacts may be, particularly in terms of some of the, say, for example, some of the chemical engineering uh, suggested, like releasing aerosols into the atmosphere to, to reduce solar radiation, things like that, that we're not fully aware of what the full impacts could be. And, and we're, we've already seen the effects uh, of climate change. That that's, that's one example of, of what geoengineering can do. Yeah, and as well as like focusing on that solar geoengineering, which essentially involves injecting aerosol particles into the upper atmosphere, and this causes less sunlight to then be absorbed uh, by the Earth 
And while it sounds great, it sounds brilliant, um, we can just block out the sun a little bit in certain areas, it would help, um, it'll help ar Arctic melting, it'll help reduce Arctic melting. It also has been found to cause problems with the ozone layer, so it could actually end up causing increases in things like skin cancers in certain areas if we do end up injecting stratospheric ozone. Uh, and as well as that, it's controversial because it could cause geopolitical conflicts. If we start allowing countries to mess with the upper atmosphere, we could effectively um, begin the process of starting climate warfare. You know, countries could start saying, right, well, we do better when the winters are colder. So we're going to start injecting stratospheric uh, ozone so that we can reduce the temperatures um, and messing with the climate, as we know from the impacts that we're already feeling, is definitely not a good thing and should be avoided at all costs. I guess there have been a range of different policies to mitigate climate at this point, either international agreements, such as, say, the Paris Agreement and, and commitments coming out of COP, etc. And then there are more local and national policies that, say, individual governments and organizations have, have tried to implement. Does the report examine how effective these implementations have been? Yes, it does. So the report says that climate policies over the past decade have actually avoided the emission of billions of tons of CO2 each year. So without these policies, we'd be in a much worse situation. Um, and some countries we've seen have been leaders in decoupling this uh, economic growth from greenhouse gas emissions. So there are certain places now, like historically, it used to be that as economic growth happened, greenhouse gases increased with it. But there's no evidence from certain countries, places like Denmark, Norway, uh, that emissions have been decoupled successfully from economic growth, which benefits the citizens of the country itself because the economy is doing well, but it also benefits the planet. So Denmark has seen steady declines in CO2 over the past few years, and it has also seen significant gains in its GDP. And the main way that Denmark has done it has been to increase energy efficiency and ensuring that energy isn't wasted as much as possible. And they've also seen increases in wind power and renewable energy. And if you've been to Denmark, they're also trying to focus on trying to make cities as walkable as possible, as cyclable as possible, and the public transport infrastructure is pretty excellent. So it can all be done. And we have the solutions again. We just really kind of need the, the political will behind them. It's so good to have those test cases to show an example of what could be done. I mean, I've often thought that Ireland is in a perfect position to be such a test case or such an example. You know, as, as you've already mentioned, we have fantastic renewable energy resources. We're a relatively small country. So in terms of implementing these changes and implementing transport uh, changes, et cetera, should be relatively feasible. And not only would it be a benefit to us immediately, but also serve as an example of how process can be done and, and of the benefits both economic and environmental yeah i think we have such a huge opportunity there and we we have outlined climate targets that are very ambitious ireland has some of the most ambitious climate targets in the eu but we are missing our climate targets like recent seai reports and epa reports have shown that we're missing our targets year on year even with the covid pandemic our emissions went up and each year that we miss our targets it makes the next year's target even harder to reach because these emissions are cumulative so every time we miss one it makes it twice as hard the next year um, and the un secretary general kind of summed it up when he said uh, that some government and business leaders are saying one thing and doing another and he went as far as saying that they are lying and that we need to make sure politicians are held accountable and that these promises of emissions reduction are followed through on because there's so much opportunity there that we need to take advantage of. I guess, to be fair as well, 
to enact these mitigation policies, it's not without cost. You know, we've mentioned that there there is investment needed to roll out some of these policies. Yeah, there is. Um, and the report kind of out, or goes into the detail of the cost of mitigation and the cost of not doing anything and kind of comparing the two. And the report concludes that the benefits of mitigation far outweigh the costs. So the like for one example, taking air quality, like improving air quality will result in such huge positives in relation to human health uh, that are far greater like the savings that you get from um, not having people in hospital with lung conditions because of the um, air quality in cities and stuff is far greater than uh, the cost of you know producing green infrastructure uh, in the cities and in places that need them and then the opportunities for renewable energy are huge like in Ireland we talk about wind power and as well as that, there's the co-benefits of long-term employment with all these jobs um, and the cost of not doing it, the cost of being left behind, essentially, as the world continues on a greener path um, is far higher than not doing it. But it's not all. I mean, things will need to change. Systems will need to be completely transformed. The IPCC describe it as there will need to be reallocations in employment. So there will need to be job creation in some sectors, but other sectors will have job losses. And it's vital that we kind of do this as fairly and equitably as possible. And that needs to be supported by policy. Uh, workers need to be supported through training initiatives uh, in order for this to kind of, or in order for us to get to a kind of low carbon future. I it's, think that the kind of the main message of the report is that things are bad. Um, we're kind of, we're at the edge of a cliff here. And the window of opportunity that we have to fix things is kind of closing rapidly. But we do have all of the solutions already here to fix the problem. And um, we just need to kind of have the will to do it too. Yeah, it's perspective seems to be a big aspect of it. As you said, there are costs, but if we can expand our timeline to a long-term perspective, those costs are greatly outweighed by the benefits. It's not always easy to have that perspective when you're working with things like short, relatively short-term election cycles and things like that, but the, the, the long-term benefits uh, substantially outweigh the costs. Yeah, as you might, like some of, the, some of the, the details in the report are stark, particularly in terms of the timelines, you know, talking about, say, three years left uh, to halt increases in emissions and then a further five, five years to, to cut them in half. But there is, as, as we mentioned at the start, there is a general thread of optimism through the report, as you said, that we have the tools that we, that we need and that wide implementation of them can have substantial effects on climate change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, GDP growth as well. They looked at this and saw that GDP growth in future without any climate action would be far less than the GDP growth we'll experience with climate action. So if we're purely focused on economics, um, it would still be far more beneficial to invest now and invest early. Just from a completely selfish money financial point of view, we'd still be better off. But luckily, it has the kind of co-benefit, as well as being financially better off. We're making the world a much nicer place to live. We're increasing people's quality of life. And we're really um, making the world a better place for future generations. Well, it's it's a very interesting report. And over the course of the last two episodes, we've, we've dug into both the the impacts of, of climate change, the potentially severe impacts, but also the hope of what we can still do about it. For the moment, Emma Borg, thanks very much for coming in to talk to us again. We look forward to having you back on. Thanks, Noel. That's all for this month. Thanks again to Dr. Flattery for joining me over the last two episodes. All thoughts or comments on this episode are welcome, so be sure to get in touch on the Met Aaron or RTE Weather Social Channels or drop an email to podcast at met.ie. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally get your podcasts. 
and do check out our previous episodes. Next month, we'll have a special episode on storm chasing. I'll be traveling to the US in mid-May to track some of the region's most spectacular weather. If you'd like to follow along on the trip, I'll be sharing pictures and videos while I'm there on my Instagram at FitzpatrickNoel. Until then, thanks for tuning in and I look forward to speaking with you next month. The Met Aaron podcast is presented and researched by Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick. Production and editing was by Jani Lanagon.